Hello and welcome to Able Medics, a podcast from the General Medical Council. I'm Tanita Cross, producer of this series and the GMC's Digital Content Officer. We've just published updated guidance for educators on how to support disabled people to become doctors during their time at medical school and in the workplace. To help us draft the guidance, we spoke to lots of disabled medical students and doctors, and we want you to hear their voices and stories too. All views shared in this series are personal and do not reflect the views of the GMC. You can visit gmc-uk.org forward slash medics to find out more about our guidance, which is called Welcomed and Valued. And if you want to share your story or give us feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at GMCUK and please use the hashtag AbleMedics. Hi, I'm Ioana Maraki and I'm an Education Policy Manager here at the GMC. I've led our recent health and disability review and it's made me passionate about making sure medicine is an accessible and inclusive profession. Last time on Able Medics, we heard about how disability is viewed by patients, colleagues, educators, and by disabled doctors themselves. Today, in episode three, we discuss how flexibility and tailored reasonable adjustments can help keep more medics in university and at work and support them through challenging career transitions. In 2017, we published new standards called Excellence by Design to help make postgraduate training more flexible for all trainees. For those with health needs, flexibility is vital to enable them to pursue their chosen career in medicine. I think a lot of the time, particularly in this time that is very litigious and we're all very much obsessed with guidelines and policies, we need to be flexible. And yes, that's coming from a very bendy doctor. (laughs) But we need that flexibility in the system to be able to go, you know what, this person could be a fantastic doctor or is a fantastic doctor. Just because they can't do this one specific task, we'll find a specialty where they don't need to do that one specific task. And they'll go from there. I think it's... I see all too often trainees, particularly with disabilities, being forced through hoops that they simply can't be expected to fit through. And if we lose them, we lose years of training that the taxpayer has paid for, and we lose a potentially incredible asset to the NHS, simply because of a lack of flexibility on the part of our training programme. And that's, that's horrific to think about. That's somebody's life, that's somebody's career, that's somebody's aspirations. And to take that away from them, purely because we can't be flexible, makes me very, very cross. It is a, a, a bit of a culture shift that's required and being clear about what the training and you know, CT1 years involve. I mean, in my time, it involved doing six months of medicine and six months of surgery as a house officer, and that included being part of the crash team and running to cardiac arrests. Now, if I was a houseman and I had my stroke, I wouldn't have been able to do that, run to cardiac arrest, at least not on my own. And I could have been part of a team once we got there to help do stuff. But I do know people who did become disabled just before they did their house years who, who then had their training kind of amended. They were let off doing certain duties, but could still carry on and do most of their training and um, become fully qualified doctors that they wanted to be. 
That was Dr. Hannah Baron Brown and Dr. Susu Kumaran. Dr. Anita Bishop agrees with them that flexibility and the willingness of others to adapt is crucial for disabled doctors. But for Anita, it begins with communication. I think it's important for people to know that actually it's a really positive thing to disclose your health conditions because if we know about it, we can then maybe tailor your um, foundation program to uh, consider your health conditions to suit your physical needs. For example, at one point in my um, medical and career and just in my life, I had to use a mobility scooter. And I had, um, in one situation, I, there, were, uh, there was a certain ward that I couldn't go on because physically I couldn't use the mobility scooter around the, uh, the desk, the reception desk, so I couldn't actually go around. So they accommodated that by placing me in a different area where I still got good clinical experience, but it was all on one level. Under the law, in all four countries of the UK, education bodies, so for medicine, that's universities and postgraduate deaneries and HE local teams, they have a duty to make reasonable adjustments to make sure that disabled learners aren't put at a substantial disadvantage during their training. This is a very complicated area in law, but organisations must exercise judgment and balance a range of factors when deciding what adjustments would be reasonable. This may be made easier by consulting the disabled person about their day-to-day needs and what will make a difference for them. For the rest of this episode, you'll hear doctors talking about the adaptations that have enabled them to stay in training and educators giving examples of the adjustments they've put in place to support trainees. Here's Foundation School Director in Wessex, Dr. Mike Masting. There's the reasonable adjustments that we can make within their work. There, there are things like, for instance, physical disability. We've had uh, a couple of, of people who, who, whose mobility is not as good and, and one person who's compliant to a wheelchair who um, we, we made some changes in the curriculum, for instance, saying that, that you didn't have to do cardiopulmonary resuscitation. You just had to know how to do it and how to lead it. Uh, we've had a couple of people, as I mentioned earlier, with hearing difficulties, um, who with amplified stethoscopes, um, and actually, what, the most important thing for those two individuals was making was them was getting them to make their colleagues aware, so that when in things like hand meetings and whatnot, they would face them, so they could see their lips, so they could lip read, things like, just simple things like that. And actually, if you do that, it works exceptionally well. One of the trusts I was in gave me a laptop that went on my lap, which doesn't sound like rocket science mm. at all. But everybody uses these giant laptops on trolleys that you have to push around the ward. And firstly, it's higher than my head. So I was kind of <laughs> typing above my head. And, and I can't push the trolley when I'm pushing me. And so once I kind of pointed this out and I had a laptop I could sit on my lap, actually I was faster than everybody else because I wasn't having to push this blooming trolley around. I was just pushing me as I would anyway any way normally. Um, so I think actually there are little adaptations which, if done well, can make me more functional than the able-bodied doctor. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just about trying different things and seeing what works. In terms of adaptations, I guess what I've generally needed is admin support to set things up for me, get files out, bring patients to the to the office, those sorts, to the clinic, those sorts of everyday practical help. Um, in recent years, I've been able to have um, more formal occupational health assessments and then had 
sort of chair, you know, office chairs that would be more supportive of my back and shoulder and uh, having a designated spa parking space uh, and Dragon and, you know, uh, assistive dictation software. You know, as silly as it sounds, actually, um, looking at the, that, that good old accessibility into buildings problem, I mean, I know that there are minimum standards um, and that all, obviously all hospitals and GP surgeries have to meet those minimum standards. Um, but actually, um, when you look at it, th those access standards are there for patients. Um, staff access areas that patients don't access. And in a lot of cases, you can't access those staff areas in a wheelchair. Um, and that's just never been looked at. As an undergraduate educator, Professor Kate Thomas, Vice Dean and Program Director for Medicine at the University of Birmingham, admits it can be harder for medical students to access practical reasonable adjustments when they go on clinical placements. You might come across physical difficulties and, you know, just very simple things that are really quite difficult um, to get changed for a student. So enabling them to have some equipment that's at the right height for them or um, is um, aligned in the right way can be quite difficult because the trusts and the general practices see the student as a transient person and not their member of staff. So sometimes we do find those sorts of physical barriers come into play. Mm. But I think it's it's our job to have a battle with, with people, not the students. Even within the medical school, Kate and her team are continually testing out new ways to make disabled students' lives a little easier. We have encountered times in um, exams, for example, where examiners have said, what's the matter with your stethoscope? What's that? Are you trying to cheat? And that's even though we always um, send information in advance saying, this student is using an amplified stethoscope, please let your examiners know. Mm. Um, and this really didn't work very well for us because it kept happening for various reasons in exams. So um, we had a student with um, quite a bad speech impediment who one of the ways he coped was which he'd been taught by a speech and language therapist was to circle his hands um, to help him establish a rhythm so that he could get his words out and again we would send a message in advance of the exam and then we'd get remarks back you know this student was very anxious kept flapping his hands so we we decided that this method was clearly not working and the poor students, you know, exams stressful enough, the OSCE is stressful enough without having the examiner, you know, cross-examining you about something that is nothing to do with the exam. So we adopted an idea which um, UCL used, which was we, we now have a blue laminated card which the students carry with them and give to every examiner before at the beginning of the station, which just says um, this student will be 
you know, will have to sit down or will have to stand up or will circle their hands. We don't go into why, we just tell them it's going to happen and that, you know, they have permission to do this and it's on, you know, it's got the university crest on and so on. So it looks super uh, official and that's helped that. Um, And we haven't had those sorts of problems since we implemented that. Once medical students graduate and join the foundation program, things can get even more complicated as they enter the workplace and frequently move between training posts. Here's Dr. Mike Masting again, talking about how the foundation program can often be tailored to someone's health needs. Adjustments like not putting people on night shifts or or, uh, out of hours work if if, if, um, the the healthcare professionals felt that it would disturb their mental health, uh, people working less than full time, uh, an awful lot of doctors um, now work less than full time. It's becoming normal. Uh, we shouldn't see it as being something strange. It's totally normal. Um, and indeed, the evidence from the GMC trainee surveys that those who work less than full time seem to seem to do very well. Um, so, there's, so there's all sorts of adjustments that can be made. I'm quite lucky in that every job I've had has always been really flexible with me and have done a lot to try and make things as easy as they can. Mm. Um, for example, in the last year, the rotations I picked were in a way quite deliberately not spread out everywhere. So I did a GP job for four months where I was very much based in one clinic room. And there's only so much I can injure myself walking across a clinic room. Um, but then I did an A&E job. And while it was quite a big department, it was all very much in one place and you didn't have to trek around the hospital. When I spoke to Mike, he told me the story of a young doctor with mental health issues who he first encountered at a fitness to practice panel at their medical school. By getting to know the student before they joined the foundation program, Mike was able to work with them and his colleagues to put a range of reasonable adjustments in place that ultimately enabled the student to successfully complete foundation training. The jobs, the posts that that person did were with in very specific departments where uh, perhaps people were a bit more um, supportive, certainly at the start, than in other departments. So we did handpick some jobs. Although I have to say, by the time they came around to F2, we didn't handpick the jobs. They just got the ones that were there. And because I think they'd had a very successful F1 year, uh, that made it very easy and F2 was fine. Out of all the possible reasonable adjustments that can be put in place, though, Mike ended our conversation by reminding me of the most important piece of the puzzle. Rarely, in my my experience, have the reasonable adjustments involved very much other than just a bit of reorganisation, really, um, and, and getting the right people. Uh, people are very important. I think people focus on physical things like buildings and whatnot, but actually the people looking after um, and supervising uh, these young doctors are the, is the most important thing. Next time, in episode four of Able Medics, we ask our interviewees what general support initiatives would help disabled students and doctors pursue their chosen career. In the meantime, please tweet your feedback on this episode at GMCUK and visit gmc-uk.org forward slash ablemedics to find out more about our welcomed and valued guidance and to read more stories like these. Thank you for listening. Able Medics is a podcast by the General Medical Council. It was hosted by our Education Policy Manager, Joanna Maraki, and it was produced by me, Tanita Cross. 
Thanks to Nick Drew, Laurie McManus and Steph O'Connor from the GMC for their support. And thanks to our guests, Hannah Barham-Brown, Sue Sukumaran, Anita Bishop, Mike Mazding, Kelly Lockwood and Kate Thomas. <laughs>